Well, it's important to know who it is you're relating to, isn't it? Have you ever made a phone call where you think you're calling one person, but you actually call someone else? This happened to me the other day. I tried to call Jane, but it was the wrong Jane. There was initial confusion on my part, and then as I realised that it was the wrong Jane, there was the embarrassment that set in. You see, the one Jane in my phone contacts was a different Jane to the Jane that I ended up, that I, that I was trying to call. Well, another time, it wasn't me making the call, it was me receiving the call. The woman at the other end, I still have no idea who she was, but she was after a Tim, apparently me, and it seemed really urgent. She said, you have to come in straight away. She wanted documents, some files that I supposedly had, but I had no idea what she was talking about. I asked what these documents were and where I had to bring them, but she thought I was just messing with her. I told her that she must have had some wrong information, that there'd been some kind of mistake, but she wouldn't listen. She was like, just get here now. She was actually really angry and scary. Feel sorry for the actual Tim that she was after. Well, what barrier prevented her from knowing who it was she was relating to? I don't know. But it had to have consequences, didn't it? Either for her or for the Tim she thought she was talking to. And what about those files? They seemed pretty important. But that's... But, an, but a thought came into my head the other day, maybe the whole thing was just a prank on me. <laughs> maybe it was all just a prank, but that's beside the point. Not knowing who you're relating to can have serious consequences. And they don't get more serious than when it comes to relating to Jesus. Remember John 20, 31. We're going to be banging on about that verse a lot because that is why John is writing this gospel. Life is on the line. John writes that we might have life, eternal life, but that life only comes by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, knowing who it is that we're relating to. Well, in chapter 3, the chapter before, chapter 4, obviously, we see that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is the Saviour of the world. There's that verse in John 3.17, For he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There we see that Jesus has a mission to the world. And this mission will take him away from Jewish territory, chapter 3, into Samaria, chapter 4, on his way to Galilee. He's got an appointment with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. And if you know your Old Testament... When a man meets a woman at a well, things happen. The women tend to get caught up in the promises of God. Now, Jesus has an amazing offer for this woman, but there's major barriers standing in the way of her knowing the true identity of the one she's relating to. See, this woman couldn't be any different from Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus down the road who knew who had everything going for him to be able to recognise Jesus as one of Israel's teachers. But she's got absolutely nothing going for her, this woman. 
First, there's the gender barrier. She won't believe Jesus is the saviour of the world if she can't see past Jesus the Jewish male. You can see her there come to the well with her head down, trying to avoid eye contact with him. But what does Jesus do? He speaks to her. He crosses the line. He asks her for a drink. Men didn't speak to women in public, especially not alone in the middle of the day. The gossip, the gossip and rumours that would go around, these are the kind of meetings that Malcolm Turnbull would want his cabinet ministers to avoid. Well, the woman, she can't believe she's been spoken to. Verse 9, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. There's the gender barrier. But there's also the ethnic barrier. She goes on in verse 9. How can you ask me for a drink? Then we've got that helpful little comment, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They hated each other's guts. It was a family feud of epic proportions. You see, they'd been divided since the kingdom split after Solomon. And the divide only deepened when the Samaritans took it upon themselves to spit in the face of the Jews, essentially, and build their own temple. They couldn't do life together, they couldn't do business together, they couldn't do religion together. She had to be wondering, who is this Jewish man? And what's he hanging around me for? Far out, he must be desperate for a drink. Well, Jesus is in need of a drink, but it's her need that he cares more about here. As the saviour of the world, Jesus is on a mission to give her something she's never known. But again, the problem is, she doesn't know who she's relating to. If she did, verse 10, Jesus said she'd have asked him for water. But not just any water, living water. If you haven't noticed, John's Gospel is a very wet gospel, isn't it? We've seen water become wine, the need to be born again of water and spirit, and we will see blood and water flow from Jesus' side when he's speared on the cross. Every time, every time, every reference, the water points to the life that Jesus brings. But it's not just any kind of life. It's not just physical life. It's life at the spiritual level, and it's no different here. In verse 13, Jesus speaks about water that ends spiritual thirst, water that satisfies spiritual needs, water that brings eternal life. It's a powerful image, isn't it? What it calls to mind for me is when I was at Blaring Dam, at the dam wall where there's the spillway that flows into the Tumut River. And I remember being there as a kid, the dam was chock-a-block and the water just flowed down the spillway. It was never-ending, that, that source of life flowing down. I'll remember it forever. The image is powerful, but Jesus is using this powerful image to make a deep and spiritual point. He's pointing to the deep and lasting satisfaction in life. 
He's pointing to that thing that we all find so elusive. I've got a friend who let loose three pigs in her school. And each pig, she painted on the side of it, the number one on the first pig, the number two, and the number four. That's right. Pigs number one, two and four were rounded up pretty quickly. But where was pig number three? The whole school went in pursuit of this, of this missing pig. You can imagine the chaos. You can imagine the confusion. But of course, pig number three was never found because it didn't exist. I reckon that I reckon that the search for deep and lasting satisfaction in life can feel a bit like this. We relentlessly search for it, but it seems so elusive, doesn't it? Haven't you found that? You pursue a career and instead of it being fulfilling, it turns out to be a bit of a drag. And so again you thirst. You get more stuff, whatever it is, that new piece of technology, that designer label that's just come out. But it doesn't work out as you'd hoped. It doesn't look as good on you as you hoped. And so again, you thirst. You put your hopes in a relationship with someone. But she doesn't feel the same way. Or he just lets you down. And so again, you thirst. You live for your kids. But for all of the joys that they bring, there's disappointments there too. And so again, you thirst. I wonder if that's what life's become for you. It's promised so much, but it's left you dry. Thirsty. There's got to be more to life, doesn't there? And Jesus is saying, yes, there is. With the gift of His Spirit, Jesus promises that you'll never thirst again. It's like a spring. There's an abundant supply. It'll never dry up. What he offers will mean life as it's meant to be. Life with God in relationship with him. A life that goes on forever. That's what life's really about. Believe and drink. That's what Jesus offers this woman And that's what he offers us. But the woman, she doesn't get it. She wants some of this water, sure, but she thinks that Jesus is talking about some literal water, some literal never-ending stream. And who can blame her for wanting that, right? I won't have to come back to this well day after day. I won't have to come back to the place that makes me thirsty just getting there, let alone pulling the bucket up out of it. She still doesn't know who it is she's relating to. Sure, she knows that he's not your average Jewish male. He talks with her. And he happens to have this spring of water or something in his backyard that, she, that he's happy for her to get water from. But there's another barrier. We've seen the gender barrier. We've seen the ethnic barrier. But there's the moral barrier as well, isn't there? Right from the start of this encounter, there's been a moral question mark with this woman. Think about it. She comes to the well on her own. In the heat of the day, instead of the cool of the evening with the other women. She's been shunned by her people. Shamed and disgraced. And we're about to find out why. 
the woman's tragic life, her immoral life, is exposed. Jesus changes tack and asks her to bring her husband up to the well. When she says she doesn't have a husband, Jesus says, I know, you've had five. And the man you're shacked up with now isn't your husband. It's scandalous. Her life is a mess. She comes to the well every day to what end? To sustain herself in a life that's actually destroying her. And Jesus exposes it all in the midday sun. Here stands the one who knows without being told everything about her, about her dark and immoral life. Well, unless you've been hiding under a rock the last few weeks, you would have heard about the recent scandal involving Barnaby Joyce and a former staffer of his. The media almost delighted in exposing it all. And how shameful and immoral the whole story is. Lives messed up. Relationships broken. But if we're honest, would any of us want our lives publicly exposed? The worst of us? Here's what someone writes. I couldn't put it any better, so I've just lifted it. So many are in desperate need of a saviour, but then which of us is not? Who among us could stand alongside this woman and have our lives scrutinised and revealed in every detail by this Jesus? And not know our desperate need of salvation too. Jesus knows everything we've ever done, everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever said. Do you realise how desperately we need a saviour? Do you know your need for forgiveness? Have you believed and drunk from the well that springs up to eternal life? Jesus confronts the woman with her need for a saviour and he invites her, a woman, a Samaritan, with the life that she's lived to believe and drink. And if he offers it to her, he offers it to anyone. Well, after being exposed, you might expect her to to deny it or to run away in fear and shame, but she doesn't. She's getting closer to knowing who it is that she's relating to. And she's bold enough to speak in verse 19 and 20. She identifies Jesus as a prophet. Fair enough. But then she makes this comment about Jewish Samaritan stuff again. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What's that? What is that? Is it the biggest let's change the subject moment ever? Well, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. How do you go from your ugly sin to worship of God? Well, maybe, just maybe, she wants to know if she needs to go to Jerusalem to worship God. That is, to offer sacrifice, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be saved. That's what worship is about. We think worship is about singing a few songs to God. No, worship is way more than that. It's about meeting with God, relying on His mercy. I don't think she's avoiding the subject. I think she's getting to the heart of it. 
See, in the eyes of the Jews and her neighbours, she's as far from salvation as anyone. But this adulteress has got more hunger for God and his ways than the religious elite down the road. The right person has come into her world. The one who shows her now what true life is all about. Believe me, woman. Verse 21. See that word? Believe. Everywhere in John. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The invitation to believe and drink leads to life. Life for the woman, life for us, lived out in true worship. And what does that life look like? Well, it's got nothing to do with where you are. That's the first thing. There's no holy places anymore. This is not a temple. The church building over there is not a temple. The people of God are the temple, the place where God dwells. Jesus is the temple, the place where you meet God. See, the question's no longer where, it's how. What attitude? Worship will be focused on Jesus in spirit and in truth. The true worshipper is the one who recognizes this Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world, and seeks to live accordingly. And it's an all of life thing, not just a Sunday thing. Anyone can say Amen. Anyone can sing, Lord, I lift my voice to you. But true, wor- true worship means more than that, not less than that but more than that. I show what I really think about Jesus, how? By the way that I live my life. Now, if the woman's going to move from false worship and immorality to true worship pleasing to God, she needs to know who she's relating to. And she's still not sure. But she knows, what does she know? She knows when the Christ comes, he'll tell her what she needs to know. He'll explain everything. And Jesus' response, the climax of this section, you see it there, I who speak to you am He. The first, the most direct reference that Jesus makes about Himself in John so far. Revealing to the Samaritan woman that He is the Christ. Finally she knows the one, who she, the one who she's relating to is the Christ, the saviour of the world. The gender barrier, the ethnic barrier and the moral barriers, none of them are enough to get in the way of Jesus saving her. Jesus can save anybody. doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done. You might feel like a nobody in a world of somebodies. Jesus came for nobodies. You might feel like you know nothing about the Bible, that you're in the dark, that everyone else here knows more than you. Jesus came for the ignorant and not to leave you in your ignorance. 
You might be ridden with guilt and shame about your past, about something you've done. Jesus came for the worst of sinners. Jesus came on a mission to save the world. And this is a wake-up call for us, isn't it? For us as a church and for us as individuals. It's a wake-up call not only to believe and drink, as we learn from this part of John 4, but it's a wake-up call to believe and reap, as we learn from the next part of John 4, which we'll be spending a lot less time on today. Look what happens next. It's almost comical, okay? And it's full of irony. The disciples get back from doing the shopping. They've been to Aldi. They've bought some food. And they're shocked to see Jesus talking with a woman. But they've learnt now to expect the unexpected with Jesus, so for now they keep their mouth shut, okay? Now here's the comical and ironic situation. The woman leaves her bucket of water to go and tell everyone about what's just happened. Her abandoned bucket there on the ground is a testimony to her wonderful discovery. What discovery? The discovery of living water that satisfies eternally. She's been gripped by Jesus and the life that he has for her. But the disciples? The disciples? They can only think about the food and their shopping. Had they forgotten who it was that they're relating to? Revival is virtually breaking out down the road where the Samaritan woman has gone. They've turned and they're coming in droves wanting to hear from Jesus himself. And what are the disciples doing? They're buttering peanut butter sandwiches and trying to shove them in Jesus' face. They seem totally unaware of the moment. The day of salvation has dawned on Samaria. Well, verse 35 packs a punch where Jesus says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus is saying, you're still thinking the harvest's a long way off. But it's here now. You're wrong. It's happening right now. They didn't see a harvest among the Samaritans, even now. Jesus had work to do. He says in verse 34 that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' mission to save the world is to gather his people and bring them to eternal life. That's what satisfied him. Bringing people from death to life is the food that sustains and fulfills Jesus. As a church, is this what we're on about? Are we on about Jesus' mission? Are we looking at the fields of Gungalan? Or our workplace? Or our school? And are we seeing a harvest? Today is the day of salvation. Jesus hasn't returned yet because there's still people to save. 
And Jesus invites his disciples and he invites us to partner with him in that mission. Lots of sending is going on here. The Father sends the Son, verse 34. Jesus sends his disciples, verse 38. Well, we too are sent as sowers and reapers or both. This is what life looks like now for us who found it. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're feeling the least satisfied in life you ever have, even as a Christian. You look back to when you found life in Jesus, the joy that you felt, and it seems like a distant memory. You don't feel alive now. But you feel like it's all you've got. And so you're looking back to your conversion experience or some spiritual experience that you might have had and you're living off the fumes of that experience but don't just look back don't just look back perhaps one reason why you're feeling so dry if that's you this morning is that you're not embracing the life God has for you now Jesus has got a harvest And we've been called into mission with him. Believe and reap is the call. This is the life that Jesus calls all of us into to play our part. This is what he's doing. And so I'm going to read the last part to finish of uh, chapter 4, verse 39 to 42. Last part of the passage we had read, which I think it inspires me to knock on my neighbour's door and introduce myself to them. I haven't done that yet. It inspires me to speak, to look look at people and see that they are lost, that they are people who need to be saved, who need to hear about Jesus. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world.